Praise the Lord. Um, it is great to worship with you all today. Uh, today is a Palm Sunday, and it is the beginning of the Passion Week. Uh, the Passion Week is a suffering week. Uh, we, as Jesus experienced the betrayal, crucifixion, and death during this week. And it is time for us to really meditate and remind the suffering of Jesus Christ in order for us to understand in depth the grace and love of Christ and prepare ourselves to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would like to recommend all of you to take this time very seriously and not miss the profound teachings on our faith and spirituality as we prepare for the Easter. And we will have some uh, materials to help you, especially uh, this uh, Passion Week, and um, we will continue to meditate on Christ. Praise the Lord. Uh, a powerful passage for us to meditate upon today. Uh, for better understanding of the context of this passage, let me give a brief background. The, during the time of Jesus, Israel was under the Roman occupation. Many people of Israel were waiting for their ultimate king, the Messiah, the Christ, to come to liberate them from Roman power. As a matter of fact, in every history of Israel, the Israelites were waiting for this ultimate king, a son of David, whom God promised and prophesied that he will come to free them from all their sufferings and slavery. Did you know even today, some Jews are still waiting for the ultimate king? With this in mind, here was a young man from Nazareth with God-like authority who was doing all kinds of miracles and teaching the kingdom of God. And as a result, people thought he was the one, the one who God sent, the ultimate king, the Messiah, who will provide what they have been dreaming about for many, many years. And you know what? They were right. Jesus was the one whom they were desperately waiting for for many, many years. He was the Messiah. And that's why they were worshiping Jesus in this text as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And we see people praising, Hail the King, a son of David! Crying out, Hosanna, which means, save us now. However, there was a huge misunderstanding about Jesus and his purpose amongst people. They viewed Jesus as a political king who will have a power like King David to free Israel from Rome. Even some people were ready to form an army and follow Christ. And as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they were giving him worship as a political king. But interestingly, this supposedly political king shows up riding this pitiful, unroyal, humble animal. Why would this majestic Lord, the Almighty God Himself, ride on a donkey? Well, in the ancient biblical world, a leader rode in on a horse if he was coming in war, a, donk they, a donkey to signify peace. So we kind of know culturally that Jesus was trying to show that I'm here to bring peace. However, I believe there is a profound meaning in this story of Jesus riding on a donkey. So today, we want to zoom in in Jesus riding on a donkey and understand the true identity and purpose of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there are five things we can learn about Christ as He rides on a donkey. First, we can clearly see the humility of Christ. Everyone say humility of Christ. Listen to this con uh, commentary. Jesus was manifesting His lowliness that day. It was not at all, all what we would expect a king to have. Here's a lowly Nazarene sitting on a donkey with a coat for a saddle. Add with 
motley crew of people waving palm trees instead of swords. When they came marching into Jerusalem, the Roman soldiers must have sneakered. When a victorious Roman general would return from war, elephants, tigers, and other animals would accompany him. The general would be in the chariots pulled by handsome horses. The swords of the soldiers behind him would be lifted high. The streets would be filled with the odor of incense. And the whole city would be shouting and rejoicing over the victorious king. That was common way of Romans doing the parade or triumphal parade. But can you imagine how Caesar would have laughed as he sees this scene? But this humble king would soon save the world and a couple of days later. How would he save the world? By being a humble servant king. If you look at John chapter 17, verse 5, he says, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, the Christ was God. But he did lay aside his glory. He laid aside his right and his glory, and he came down to become a servant king, a humble king, a donkey king. Think about it. He had no place to lay his head when he was on earth. Sometimes he's, he laid his head on a boat. He was born in a borrowed manger. He was riding on a borrowed donkey. And he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. He possessed nothing on earth. Yet he was the ruler over everything. He was the creator. What a contrast, isn't it? Because was he was humble, he obeyed. You see, outworking of humility is obedience. Here, Jesus obeyed God to fulfill the Scripture even by riding a humble animal for his triumphal ceremony. And you might say, why is it triumphal ceremony? The Bible describes, well, yes, he is entering into Jerusalem to die to be crucified on the cross. And it's not triumphal to the eyes of the world, but it is triumphal in the eyes of God because through the cross, later on we'll talk about that in Good Friday, through the cross, He will achieve victory over sin and death. Therefore, as He's entering into Jerusalem, this is a triumphal, victorious parade. Amen. Do you see that? But here Jesus obeyed God to fulfill the scripture even by riding a humble animal for his triumphal ceremony. You know why? In Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 through 10, he says this about the Messiah who's coming into Jerusalem. This is how he prophesied. Listen to the description of Messiah according to Zechariah. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, colt, and full of a donkey. Amazing prophecy, isn't it? It was a couple hundred years prior to Jesus. And I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem. By the way, Christ would conquer the world not through horses, not through chariots, but through the humble donkey. That kind of humble attitude. And the battle bow, a battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. This was the declaration of the kind of life he lived, the kind of ministry he would lead on the cross. And that was the humility of Christ that we can clearly see. Do you see this? Now, the question still remains, what is our response to the humility of Christ? 
What is your response to this? John chapter 13, verse 16 says this, No servant is greater than his master. We also must be available as humble and obedient servants. I know it might sound strange to people of today's world, but we have no rights as servants except to obey what the master says. After a long day of work, when the master comes home and tells you to cook dinner for you, you have no right to say you're tired. Simple obedience. That should be something that we should think about to respond to the humility of Christ. Simple obedience. Think about it, especially this Passion Week. Simple obedience. Think about it. We need the attitude of low humility, not only before God, but before also others as well. That's what the Bible teaches us. Again, no servant is greater than the master. That's why we don't live for our wealth. We don't live for our career. We don't live for our children. We don't live for the things of this world. We live for solely for God and His kingdom. And as we do, yes, we shall raise our family. We shall take care of our career. We shall take care of our lives. But ultimately, what do you live for? We live for one master. We live for one God. We live for Christ and His kingdom. And we have to understand that we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge Him as our God, as our Lord. And the Bible teaches us that as God's people, as a humble servant, God wants us to preach the gospel, the message of peace of this donkey king, king on the donkey. See, we must humble ourselves and be available to the service to the Lord, the work of the kingdom of God in your life. Amen? Check yourselves. Are we living for ourselves? about my desire, my career, my, my family. I'm living for myself by my might. What a pride, isn't it? But let us learn from Christ as we observe this humility of Christ riding on a donkey in His triumphal ceremony, to die on the cross, to save the world. Second thing we can clearly see about Christ is this, the purity of Christ. Purity of Christ. If you look at verse 2, it says, Christ tells two of His disciples to get the donkey, right? With the one condition. He says that to get a colt which no one has ever written, Right? This refers to pure unused donkey. Unused animal was regarded as especially suitable for the religious purpose in the Old Testament. If you look at Numbers chapter 19, verse 2 actually says, This is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you an animal without defect or blemish that has never been under a yoke. You see, this refers to purity. As a matter of fact, if you know the story of uh, the Ark of the Lord, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, even to the Gentiles, to the Philistines, God gives instructions to carry the Ark of the Covenant of God, which represents the presence of God. As the Philistines were, bring, were to bring the ark of the Lord to the Israelites, God commanded them how it was to be treated and carried. He says, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have and, and never been yoked, unused and pure cow. Use it to bring my ark to my people. That was instruction to the Philistines who had this trouble and plague because they took away the ark of the Lord to themselves. Well, if you like to read about the story, you can. But the, you know the point. 
What about Jesus? We know that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, right? For our sin, to atone for our sin. He was pure, clean. Of course, He was God. God incarnate in the flesh. But that's why the Virgin Mary is a very, very important concept, isn't it? He who comes in a virgin woman, unused, pure. You see? That's the idea. We can clearly see the purity of Christ from this passage. Now, what is your response to that? What can we learn? I think it is very simple. We must learn to hate sin. We are already tainted with sin, I know. But through justification and through sanctification, we are being washed with the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus is holy, the pure, unblemished Lamb of God, if we want to be used by Him, guess what? We must be pure instruments of God. And I know we cannot be pure by ourselves, but take heart. God gives us forgiveness of sin through this perfect sacrifice of Christ. And we can be cleansed, purified. And yes, we will still struggle with sin in our flesh, but God promises us that He will sanctify us day by day if you come to Him and repent and come to Him. But as people of God, what we must do is not that we can purify ourselves. Of course not. That's His job. That's His work. But at least what we need to do is what? We must learn to hate sin. We must deal with our sins. We cannot justify sins, no matter what. In our culture today, a lot of Christians are pushed, challenged, to justify sins of this world. We know that. Especially issue with abortion and issue with the sexual orientation and all that, marriage, all that. We cannot justify sin, period. Amen. Do you know that the hatred of sin is a proof and sign of our salvation? Question is, do we hate our sins? Or do we love our sin? Of course, many of us are still attracted, tempted to sin. And it is hard to resist. And I'm talking about not just some people. I'm talking about myself. Because part of us, we don't want to give up the pleasure that we receive from sinning. We are trained all our lives to enjoy sin. But remember, God is the author and perfecter of our faith, meaning He is sovereignly changing us. When we examine our lives, His sovereign change is revealed through our hatred of sin. If God is working in our lives, we have the Spirit of God in us. Guess what? That we will continue, start to somehow to stay away from sin. To shun evil, the Bible says. From the depth of our soul, yes, we will hate sin. We will continue to struggle through in our flesh, but in the depth of our soul, we will learn to hate sin. And that's the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Even that process is governed by Christ, His Holy Spirit. Praise be to the Lord. Amen. We don't have to worry about it. We just have to submit to Him to His work. He is going to sanctify us. He is going to purify us if you just come and repent before the Lord. His sovereignty and holiness is manifested in us. Our thoughts, our intention, our motives are purified with the holiness to hate what is evil, what is sinful. And that is something that we can hope in Christ Jesus. Amen. So if we have been blemished, we must be purified. If blemished already, we must constantly cry out to the Lord to sanctify us. No wonder 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we keep on confessing, if we keep on confessing, 
is a lifetime confession, isn't it? And repentance. That's why repentance is not a negative word. I don't know why some Christians, they don't want to even hear it. I don't know why we think it's going to be offend people. Repentance is basically coming back to God. Repentance is basically, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, and I'm going to follow what He wants me to do. That's repentance. Changing our direction toward God. That's repentance. For Christians, repentance should be part of our lifestyle. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart. Only the miracle of God can bring cleansing of sin. There were no perfectly unblemished animal in the Old Testament, just like we must be as pure as possible, although not perfect. We must come alive to hate sin and to love holiness and its beauty. We need to have that desire. And that desire has been given to us through the Holy Spirit. The pure servant, humble king uses the donkey, which no one has written. Guess what? God wants to use pure people, purified hearts, unused bags that has only one Lord. Amen? I don't know about you. We want to be like that. As God forgives us, purifies us, sanctifies us, we can be pure. And when we repent and come before the Lord, and when we receive this purification and sanctification from Christ, we can be used by God. No wonder God still wants to use all of us. Though we are not perfect, but He will make us perfect. He is already in the process of making us perfect. And He will at the end, when we see him, Jesus, face to face, but still in, on this earth, he will continue to be with you, teach you, and help you so that he can use you for the greater things to come for the kingdom of God and his glory. Amen. That's the purity of Christ. We need to learn. That's why in this Passion Week, I really want us to spend some time as we meditate upon the suffering of Christ. We must repent of our sins. We must deal with it. We must learn to hate it. We must learn to repel it. Amen. We must struggle through it. But through that process, though we are not perfect, but God will help us to, to go through and continue to use us. Continue on. Let's also look at the sovereignty of Christ. Sovereignty of Christ. He's in control. He never says, oops, I made a mistake. He's in control over the universe. He's in control of government. He's in control over natural environment. Every creature, every cell in your body, even your DNA all the composition of your body, everything He's in control, including every heart of people. Look at verse 2. He commands, go to the village. He knew the right place. Just as you enter, He knew the right time. You will find a colt. He knew the right object. No one has written. He knew the right condition of the object. Right? If He asks you, He knew the right person. The point is, he's in control. Even in this small story, we know he's in control. He knew everything about the whole situation. He's in control of all circumstances. He is in control over all the people. See, sovereignty is shown through, I believe, two things. Constraining power and restraining power in this passage. Constraining power, what does it mean? He can change people's heart to do things. Make, or make owner of the donkey give it up. Hey, why are you taking my donkey? Well, the Lord needs it. Okay, take it. Change of hearts of that man. I don't know who that person is. Isn't this so hard to change even ourselves, by the way? Can you change yourself? Let alone, can we change other people? <laughs> I cannot even make my dog obey me. 
I cannot even make my children to do things or change. It is impossible to change someone or even ourselves. That's how weak we are, my brothers and sisters. But why is it if you're parents, you think that you can change your children? Why do you think that if you are married, you think that you can change your spouse? Do you really think you can change them? I don't think so. You know, some woman, they're trying to marry some man who is not really godly. You know what their justification is? Oh, I'm going to change the man. And this romantic idea, somehow we can change people. We can influence them, surely. We can lead them, surely, yes. We can love them, but changing of hearts? I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, that's not our jurisdiction. As a pastor, I always struggle with it. Oh, how I wish I can control people's mind and heart. But I can't, and I know it. Thus, if you think that you are to change others to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through evangelism or through your ministry, or if you think that you are changing by your own will, I'm getting better, I'm changing, that's good. I've been Christian for many times. Think again, my brothers and sisters. At the end, we can't change anyone or ourselves. God is changing people through you, through your ministry, through your life. Not you are changing them. All we have to do is obey God. God says, love other people. Speak to them the message of Jesus Christ. Then the message of Jesus Christ will generate faith in them. Remember? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message of Jesus Christ. Don't think that you can change your children. Yes, you can lead them, you can nourish them, you can nurture them and educate them, but at the end, you need to pray for your children that God will change their hearts. I cannot shove the salvation into their throat. My children are young and they love God, but there will be a testing of faith on their own. They need to stand up and say, I believe and I confess my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot make them to do so. All I can do is to pray for them, to lead them, to, to teach them the Bible so that when the time comes for them to make their own decision, I'm asking the Lord to change their heart, transform their heart. That's all I can do as a parent. Amen. And as we depend on the Holy Spirit in us, God is surely changing us. And only thing we should do is to submit and obey the work of the Holy Spirit. So don't give up on your parents. Don't give up on your friends whom you are reaching out right now. Pray for them. You cannot change them. Don't be frustrated. But love them with the love of Christ. Pray for them every day for their salvation. And who knows, as God answers our prayer, as I am the product of many prayers of my loved ones, that person whom you are praying for can be transformed by the power of God through His mercy. Amen? The restraining power. Constraining power, I talk about. Restraining power, you can also see God is in control. He make the wild colt be in control, right? Restrained it. We know the wild horses that have never been ridden before can be hard, very hard to restrain. Oh, how we are like the wild donkeys. Right? Unruly, uncontrollable. We can't even control ourselves. We need God to control ourselves. So let's pray. Lord, restrain me. Give me self-control. Teach me what it means. Interestingly, one of the, the, the Spirit's fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Self-control. We can control ourselves if the power of God comes over us to restrain from too much entertainment through Passion Week. I'm just giving you an example. 
to overcome the selfishness and laziness. Whatever the, the habitual things that you are struggling with, you ask the Lord, Lord, give me the power of restraining power of you that I'll be able to restrain these things. Self-control. Amen. We have a power to do so. So clearly, we can see that God's sovereignty shown through constraining and restraining power at the same time. Amen? Now, what is our response to this then? Knowing that He is sovereign. He's in control. He's the one who's doing it. We just need to submit as we trust. So, what do we need to do? What's our response? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He knows. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. He knows and He's in control. Acknowledge that. See, our problem is not that we don't know what to do. We don't know who God is. You know what our problem is? We are untamed in our flesh. We just want to do whatever we desire. We want to lean on our own understanding. We want to be the center of universe. See, enemy knows this. And he always pokes on this, don't, don't, doesn't he? From the very beginning of time, in the Genesis chapter 3, you will be like God. You will be the measure of all things. You will decide what is right and what is wrong. You will have control of your life. You will be God to yourself. That's the message. What does our culture say today? Very similar message, isn't it? You're the most important thing. We want to empower you so that you can control and you can live your life. Very ungodly culture we are living in today, my brothers and sisters. Right? But the Bible says, lean not on, on your lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge his sovereignty. Acknowledge His Lordship. He'll acknowledge Him. If we do, trust and obey as we acknowledge God as sovereign God, He'll make our path straight. He'll make it clear for you to know what is right, what is wrong, and He will teach you to be His children who is powerful living in this world. See, Christ's sovereignty, we talked about. But also, we need to understand, my brothers and sisters, in order for us to understand the Christ sovereignty, we must understand also the responsibility of obedience. Look at what happened here. Jesus was in control of everything concerning donkey. But he also tells his disciples to go get it. He could have made a donkey to come to him, but he doesn't. He makes the disciples to go and get it. So he is the one who provides a donkey, God's sovereignty, but he makes the disciples to go get it. Human responsibility. Meaning there is obedience. If we really want to acknowledge that God is in control, we must obey God. Do what he says. When we do, we will understand the sovereignty of God. If the disciples did not obey Christ to getting the donkey, they would never understand how Jesus was in control of all these things. As they go, as they went and obeyed, they understood, oh man, He is in control. Same thing in our lives, my brothers and sisters. We need to trust Him with all our hearts, but we need to do our part meaning we need to simply obey. That's why I say acknowledging God is sovereign, God's sovereignty is basic, must be shown through your obedience. When we say we acknowledge God, is, he's, he's, not, he's in control, He's our God, well, do you obey Him then? See, obedience is the outworking of acknowledgement. Right? If you obey, you're acknowledging God. 
See, we need to trust Him with all our hearts, but we need to do our part. That's why the Arabian Proverbs actually says this, trust God, but tie the camel. In all our efforts, as we trust Him, He works through those efforts. That's why we can never be lazy doing what is right. We can never be lazy in obedience. We must follow Him. When we do, though it might be hard, but we have faith and we want to acknowledge God, we will, He will then, we will experience His sovereign power working in your life. Amen. That's the sovereignty of God. And that's how we should respond to Him. We respond to His sovereignty through obedience. Let's continue on. We can also see the wisdom of Christ. Right, wisdom of Christ here. What's the man's wisdom? Well, as Christ enters Jerusalem as a king on a donkey, the Israelites had a different expectation. Right? They wanted glorious king, not the humble king. They want prideful king. They want powerful king. How do I know? Let's go back to when Israelites were desiring a king. If you look at 1 Samuel, before any king existed in the history of Israel, there were judges. Judges, judge at the time was Samuel. And judges were the one who ruled the Israelites in, instead, uh, in the place of God. Meaning God appointed a judge, and through judge, God would always instruct Israelites. So in a way, the king was God. So all our nation around them, they had a human king, very powerful kings, yet the Israelites did not have any king because they said, our God is our king, and we do have a judge who does, who is the servant of God to rule over the Israelites. Well, there was a one point. Israel wanted to have someone like other nation, like actual king. They wanted to see their king as a powerful ruler. But the point was, the, the God was already their king. So asking for a king was not, a, was not wrong in itself if they wanted the represent, representative of God, but they wanted someone they could see visibly with power, horses, and chariots that would protect them. That was the problem in 1 Samuel. They did not trust God as king, but they trusted human kings. They trusted the chariots and armies, and animals, and wealth. Just like other nations. The things they could see, they wanted. I want to trust in the things that I can feel, I can see. Isn't that what it is today? This is happening here also in Mark. Israel wanted a visible, powerful military king. After they saw the power of Jesus through the resurrection of Lazarus, I'm sure a lot of people knew what, what happened. They were like, this is the king. He's powerful. He does all kinds of miraculous signs. They wanted a visible king. They wanted the king that is powerful to destroy their enemies. Well, Jesus was powerful, yes. They were right about that. But they were thinking of a military king. That was their wisdom. Now, with man's wisdom, how do we see Jesus? How do we interpret Jesus? How do we interpret this entrance of Jesus? What about, however, according to God's wisdom? God worked differently, right? Israelites wanted someone like Saul, their first king. By the way, he was a tall man. And it is, it is said that he was the head above everyone. So if you actually see Saul, King Saul, you will be impressed. He was very handsome. And he was tall, strong, very presentable. Oh, dignified. This is the king. We like it. Everyone saw him and said he should be our king. Right? However, God chose, God's chosen king was who? Not Saul, David. In a way, 
Israelites, they wanted king, so they chose Saul. But God chose David, a small and humble shepherd boy. David was a king not with power and human strength, but he did have power. David's power was not from his muscles, of course, from his faith. God was looking for a man after God's own heart. The king who trusts in the king of kings and lord of lords, that's what he wanted. And God's strength is manifested through David. And we know David went crazy, destroying the enemies, killing the giants, and you know the story of David. But this is the kind of king that Jesus was. Jesus was the most powerful being in the universe, yes. But Jesus wanted to rule not in the throne room of the palace, but wanted to rule the, in the throne room of our hearts. Not military ruler, but the ruler of our hearts, looking for men and women after God's own heart. That's what Jesus wanted. Not ruler over the land, but the ruler over hearts. No wonder he possessed nothing on earth, but he wanted to possess the hearts of men. Amen? No wonder Jesus said, no longer the temple is physical building. Temple is your heart, your body, as I enter into your heart. People saw a shepherd boy man's wisdom. But God saw a king. People saw a, a blasphemous fool on the cross. But God saw the Savior of the world. God uses seemingly weakling who dies by his own creatures. Such is the wisdom of God. That's why the Bible says we, we can, you can never understand without faith such wisdom, right? You, you see, Jesus seems like he's losing on the cross, but he overturns it to victory at the end. What wisdom? Paul says, All depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is a foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is a wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than the man's strength. And this king on the donkey, what an incredible wisdom of God. Amen. Right? How do we respond to such wisdom of Christ? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We think in order for us to be successful, we need to step on other people to succeed in this world. We think we need to do whatever it takes to survive especially times like this. We think we need to act like others. When we think we, we, we can just go along with what the culture says so that we will not have to any trouble. We don't want any trouble as Christians. We just want to live quietly. Those are the worldly wisdom and principles, my brothers and sisters. In order for us to conquer the world, we must be transformed and changed in our minds. We need to have a different perception, perspectives. We must change our wisdom, our perspective, for it is stupidity in God's Word. We must have a biblical mindset to make our thoughts captive to Christ. So many people want to change their hourly lifestyle, but let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, your lifestyle will never change unless you change your mindset and your perspective. When our minds and hearts are changed, guess what? Our lifestyle also will change. And I already said that we cannot change ourselves, can we? We need Christ. That alone 
is also a very weird concept, isn't it, for men according to men's wisdom? You need to allow some kind of other power to change you? You must change yourself. That, that's what the world says. You need to do something about your life. That's what the world says. Yeah, I'm not saying we should not do anything. What I'm saying is ultimately we need to acknowledge that ultimately it is God who changes us. So trusting God as we put our effort in our life in obedience. Amen. Wisest way to live is the way of the cross, the foolishness in this world. We are God's own fools. Michael Card wrote in his song. Wisdom of this world says, gratify yourself, satisfy your desire. But the wisdom of Christ says, deny yourself. <laughs> this is the lifestyle of the cross. You carry the cross. Obey even if you look stupid. Obey even if this culture says no or cancel us for it. If God says, sacrifice your son, you try to sacrifice him like Abraham. If God says, get married to a famous prostitute in town, you must do so like Hosea. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read the Bible, my brothers and sisters. Some of the unthinkables God asked his servants to do in the Old Testament. Yet, they knew God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. This is the wisest way to live no matter how stupid it seems in our minds, my brothers and sisters. Don't ride on beautiful horse. Don't ride on Rolls Royce or Bentley. But ride on the donkey, just like Christ says. Meaning, ride with Him. Have a different perspective of life. That changes everything, doesn't it? Why do we make money? Why do we live on? Why do we follow our career? Why do we raise our children? Why do we live on in our lives? According to the man's wisdom, we are living for American dream, right? Nice house in the nice neighborhood, protected, enjoy things, enjoy the technology of this world. And enjoy things of this world. By the way, enjoying things of this world is not a bad thing. However, that's not the ultimate purpose of our lives and goal of our lives. Right? We live for who? God. And God graciously give us all the things that we need to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. What we need to do is enjoy God, serve Him, follow Him, work for Him, and as we do so, along the way, we enjoy God's blessings as well. But ultimately, we don't live for the things of this world. We live for the things above. We live for Christ. Amen. Amen. Last but not least, we can clearly learn the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ. He's a Lord and He uses His donkey. Right? He is a Lord of all, sovereign. He made it all. He he's in control of all things. And He has every right and every power to use anything in this world, including he, some God uses enemy too, the Satan, in His scheme of all things. You know, our problem is we look at ourselves and say, because I'm so filthy and inadequate. He cannot use me. This may sound like humility, but it's really the greatest pride. What a filthy thought. Such an arrogant thought. Every time we say, God can't do that. God can't use me. God cannot save that person. Is there anything God can't do? God can use ravens. God can use donkeys. Today we see this. 
If God can use donkeys, don't you think that He can use me and you? I know we are imperfect. But there is no great instrument or great servant. Just a great Lord who uses the instruments and servants. Amen? That's a powerful thought, isn't it? I thought about three occasions where God uses donkeys in the Scripture. Three things. Numbers 22, 28. Uh, there was a, a prophet named Balaam. Uh, I'm not sure you know the story, but read the story. It's a very interesting story. Balaam is going to, was going to the wrong way. He was about to disobey God. Basically, he wanted to curse Israel and Abraham. And, uh, but Balaam, God said no. But uh, the enemy of the Israel, they paid Balaam to curse Israel. But God said no. But Balaam wanted money. So he wanted to curse Israel, but he knew he cannot. So one point he said, fine, I'm not going to do it. But he kind of wanted to do it. So he was, he was going in the wrong way about to disobey God. And on the road, the angel of the Lord was about to slash him with a sword. And we know that prophet Balaam was spiritually blind. He could not see the angel. And by the way, if you are so focused on yourself and what you want to do, you cannot really see anything else around you. Now, Balaam is supposed to see this angel with a sword about to slay him who is being disobedient. But he didn't see that, even as a prophet. But this donkey that he was riding could see the angel. So donkey halted, did not want to move. But Balaam wanted to go to disobey God, to curse Israel. But there was an angel in front of them. Balaam couldn't see, but the donkey was seeing. Right? But the Balaam keeps beating him to move. Come on. Come on, donkey. Let's go. Let's go. Finally, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. By the way, it was not the shriek. The donkey was the first time it talks. It was a really donkey talked in the Old Testament. He says, what have I done to you for you to beat me? Can't you see the front? There was a donkey speaking to the prophet of God. How incredible, isn't it? Stop beating me. Open your eyes, prophet. See, there's an angel with a sword, about to slay us. The Lord used the donkey to speak His word so that the prophet would repent. Isn't it interesting that you listen to the donkey and repent, but why is it so hard for you to listen to the word of God when it's being preached, when advice are, and warnings are given to you? But anyway, that was the Balaam's case. Balaam's donkey speaking to the prophet. Wow, incredible scene, isn't it? Also, if you look at Judges chapter 15, verse 15, we know a guy named Samson. Do you know who Samson is? The big dude, the, like Hulk kind of guys, right? He was angry at the Philistines and had killed his family. And, and, and he wanted to, he was very angry at them. So he, want, he gets angry and he kills about 1,000 Philistines with the Spirit of the Lord. How did he kill all of them? Well, he used the jawbone of the donkey. So he sees this 1,000 Philistine men trying to attack him. And he grabs the jawbone of the donkey and he kills them all. He destroys them all. It was a jawbone of the donkey. You can see this case. Donkey was used. This dead donkey was used. And you can also see Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 11, which we read, Jesus riding on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem to be worshipped and to be exalted by the people. Now, what do you learn from these three cases about Lordship of Christ? 
The point of these cases, the Balaam, Samson, and Jesus, the point is what the Lord used, right? The Lord used the donkey. The emphasis is on the Lord. The Lord used the Balaam case, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Samson's case, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he grabbed the jaw of the, 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 the donkey and started swinging. Jesus says the Lord needs it. Right? So we know that clearly it is the Lord who used the donkeys. Now, another emphasis is also in used. He used, the Lord used on, used the donkey. Balaam case, the donkey was used to speak God's message to lead the prophet into repentance. And later on, by the way, prophet says, I have sinned. If God can open the mouth of the donkey, he can open the mouth of anyone as well, right? Samson's case, the jawbone of the donkey was used. In this respect, we must realize that the instruments came from the dead donkey. We must say, the Lord, even Lord, even if we die, somehow use my death and glorify your son. Right? Oh, how I want to be used, used, be used like used, be used like that. Even though my even through my death, the people will be touched by God to glorify him like death of many servants of God and the missionaries in the history. That's something that we need to pray for. In Samson's case, the Lord was using the remaining of the donkey. Now Jesus for his case, rise the donkey in this text. And what's he really doing? He's fulfilling the scripture. The gospel will be preached to the ends of the world. Every knee will buy. Every tongue will confess the Lord, that Jesus is Lord. And the people from every tongue and tribe will be repented in heaven. Meaning, Jesus was fulfilling, obeying God's word as he's riding on the donkey. He was the Lord using the donkeys. What can we learn? We need to pray, my brothers and sisters. Lord, use me to finish the redemptive plan of God. Lord, use me to speak the word of God to the people around me. We must pray that God will use us to fulfill His word, just like Jesus was fulfilling the scripture by riding the donkey. Lord, use me to fulfill Your promise to reach the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the Lordship. Lord, use me. Lord, somehow, use me to glorify yourself. We can see the humility of Christ. We can see sovereignty of Christ. We can see the wisdom of Christ, purity of Christ, and the Lordship of Christ as we look into this text. A lot of lessons that we can learn. This is a Lord's Day where our Lord came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. He's, we can see His humility. By the way, in the second coming, yes, He will ride on the white horse in glory. But the first time he rode a lowly donkey. Not only a donkey, but pure donkey. And he knew where he was, how to get it, because he was in control of it. He's sovereign. And the symbol of the donkey is how he should save this world as a humble king. On the cross. Interestingly, he can use, God can use the speech of the donkey, the death of the donkey, the bag of the donkey. That means he can use all of us as well. I think we need to pray that he would continually change us, empower us, use us. I don't know, and deeply, of course, whatever the donkey symbolizes. But let's be like that. May God transform our minds, our lives, and our hearts so that He can use us. Use our lives to expand God's kingdom. To share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that we need to pray for, don't you think?
if Jesus can use the donkey to fulfill his work, how much more he wants to use all of us. And are we ready to be used by God? Maybe we should pray and ask God for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me that I did not know and trust in your word. Lord, please change me, transform me by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, especially as we enter this Passion Week, so that we might somehow experience the resurrection power to be used by God for God's kingdom. Amen? I think that's the lessons that we can learn from the Palm Sunday. May the Lord our God continually use your life for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.